0: session with Dr. Farid Hulakou.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next 2 hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram. Or like my page on facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my soundcloud page and free podcasts on itunes again the studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 before i get started with the books of the week the reason why i'm doing the book today is because i had dr jennifer galvin on the show monday night we talked about the five love languages a big thanks to her again for coming on the show and of course It was good timing because today is Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, likely. I'll talk a bit about that later on in the show. Uh, Also want to make another announcement for the cruise. We're just uh, under a month away, March 9th through the 12th. I'm doing my first ever cruise along with commercial travel, traveling to Ensenada, Mexico. And I'll be doing several seminars on things like success, dating, Uh, and relationships, and also some question and answer sessions. And also we'll have DJ Alex and other entertainment on board too, so it should be a really good time. Contact Commercial Travel if you're interested uh, in joining us then, March 9th through the 12th. Okay, before I uh, discuss the book from the past week, the book for this week is Against Empathy by Paul Bloom. Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. And I was at the bookstore and I saw this title, Against Empathy, and it almost made me upset because I tend to think I'm very pro-empathy. So I realized I didn't like it, and almost I looked at the book cover in the back and almost wanted to not like it. But that made me realize, and that's a book I should read because in some way maybe it's either challenging something, I think, or he might have a perspective different from mine, and that's actually a good way to grow. Now I think the title, Against Empathy, Makes it seem like he's for not caring about anyone, but that's not at all what he's talking about. Um, But I think the title does a good job of kind of grabbing your attention. He does get into how empathy can lead us wrong or uh, astray in certain situations. And it's so far been an interesting read. I've only uh, maybe a fourth of the way in. But looking forward to finishing that book and talking about it on Monday's show next week. Again, that's Against Empathy by Paul Bloom. The book for this past week that I'll talk about now is The Science of Sin by Simon Laham. And it's kind of interesting. So Against Empathy is kind of this book where there's this concept of empathy that we think of as all positive, and he talks about the negative aspects of it. And then in this week's book, The Science of Sin, uh, Simon Laham is talking about how these things that we consider sins, the seven deadly sins, are actually uh, not all bad. So it's interesting kind of, again, adding that element of things aren't black and white. We have to see uh, what they are. So the seven deadly sins, you've probably all heard of them, even if you can't name all seven, but you've heard that term before. Pride, lust, gluttony, greed, envy, sloth. And he says anger, somebody says it's called wrath. Um, Those are the seven deadly sins. And each uh, sin is given a chapter in this book where he talks about the sin and research Related to it now, the seven deadly sins. Sometimes we might think it comes from the Bible, but it actually doesn't. It came afterwards, um, in the Middle Ages, and really was actually uh, primarily meant to be a guide for monks who on how to conduct themselves to make sure they uh, behaved in a good way and were being holy and, and living in the monastery the best way that they could. So, actually, it was intended for the monks, but then it's really spilled over, and we kind of assume of, that it's for everyone. Um, and it's interesting how much of an effect they have, because we really, in a way, tend to think of them as these truths, that they're bad things. So I thought that was interesting, him just getting into each of these different concepts. Some of them are emotions, some of them are feelings or thoughts in a way, and um, or behaviors even, and showing that they're not all bad. We shouldn't look at them as all bad. So, for example... Um, sloth, which is, of course, there's that animal that moves very slowly, but it also means laziness or inactivity. And this idea that it's just a bad thing. And and this new idea, or not necessarily very new, but maybe in this past century, that you have to be active or productive. That's the only thing that means something. And if you're not doing that, then you're being bad, and even in this case, sinful, to be lazy. But he points out that there's actually a lot of good that can come from sometimes being inactive or... Uh, just not necessarily being what we consider productive, we can get something good out of that too. Sometimes we can be more reflective when we are on our own. Um, one thing he does a couple of places that I disagreed with, or I guess it's just a way of, uh, you know, the way he presented things, he would talk about one of the sins and then talk about something showing that the sin is good, but it wasn't quite related. So for example, in the sloth section, he talks about sleep. And sleep and laziness aren't exactly the same thing, but they they are related But it's not exactly the same thing. Or in the gluttony section, he talked about how having some glucose can be important for the brain. But it's just some glucose, not gluttonous eating where you have to eat a lot to get that benefit. Just a little bit of sugar in your bloodstream essentially could be better than none. Um, But again, that wouldn't justify that gluttony is a good thing. But he was just pointing that sometimes having, eating can be better than not. But even going back to the slot section, sleep is very overrated and... Even I think you see this where people compete about how little they sleep as some kind of badge of honor to show how productive they are and how busy they are and how not lazy they are because we're so afraid to, to be that. So that that's one example. Another really important one for me was anger and this idea that anger is a bad thing. And many people have that idea. To begin with, one reason I think this is the case is because Almost all of us didn't have a good representation of anger being expressed in a healthy way in our lifetimes. Most families, what you experience is a strong suppression of anger. So you don't show your anger at all, but then you blow up when you can't hold it in anymore. And then it becomes really hurtful and hateful and negative. And so anger is just seen as this negative thing. He also talks about in the book how we, in a way, correlate or associate anger with violence. That when you're angry, you're going to hurt people or... Um, maybe even hurt yourself, but you're going to be destructive in some way. And that doesn't have to be the case. Anger sometimes is grouped as a negative emotion, but as he talks about it, maybe it's not necessarily so. It can feel unpleasant, but it can motivate us in positive ways. It can allow us to express when we've been hurt by someone else. When you're in a relationship, you have to be able to express to your partner that they've hurt you, and sometimes you have to be able to get angry with them. Again, that doesn't mean being hurtful to them or destructive, but you're upset. And so angry, anger is not a negative thing. And so when we associate it or make it a sin to be angry, this is really hurtful because it's something we need to have and need to uh, experience. Another emotion that he talks about that can have negative and positive aspects is envy. So envy is when we want something that someone else has. Now, what he does is he breaks it down into to the two types of envy, and he focuses on one, because there's one form of envy, which is I see someone, this is an example he he uses. you see someone in a Ferrari and you think, "Wow, I wish I had that car." That's what we call benign envy. So that's when I want something that someone else has, and I want to attain it. I'd like to attain it in some way or sometime. But then there's the malicious envy, which sometimes is the one we really think of as negative, and that's that, I see that nice car that person has, and I hope, uh, you know, it gets stolen or breaks down or gets into a wreck and they lose it. So we actually want them to lose it rather than in benign envy. I want to have something that that person has. And with the benign envy, we can see one, it shows a belief in myself that I can maybe get that thing or I want to, you know, the thing I don't have, I can achieve and it also isn't hurtful to that other person. I don't want them to lose it. But malicious envy, what I see is underneath that is this idea that I can't have what they have and I hate that they have what they have. So I hope they lose it. I want them not to get it. So this doesn't have to just be about things. It can even be about attributes. So um, someone, it, it could be wealth, but it could also be someone is intelligent or very knowledgeable or has a certain skill that we... Envy. We wish we had that. And again, with the benign envy, there is this feeling that I'm good and I can have that too. Whereas with uh, malicious envy, it's that, oh, they're good at that. I hope they lose that talent or skill or somehow it goes away. So there's a few, obviously, the malicious part, I think that word describes it well. There's something negative that we want them to lose. But envy itself, the benign envy can be a good thing, it could be motivating. And he shares studies where people are exposed. To people who are better than them in some way, or have some attribute they would like, or some possess something they would like, and it actually motivates them to hear about them. The envy isn't hurtful or negative, so it can be a positive thing. It doesn't have to be a negative thing. Um, another one is pride, and that's one of the the seven sins. And we have this idea that being prideful in yourself is a negative thing. It's bad, uh, you know. It also goes with what I've talked about before of self-love. That loving yourself somehow is a negative thing, that we shouldn't be so self-loving, that we associate that with selfishness and narcissism and not caring about others and this idea that we have a finite amount of love. So if I love myself a certain amount, I can't love other people. There's none left where that's not the case. Actually, the more I love myself, the more I can love other people. But looking at pride, this also can be divided into two types of pride, authentic pride and hubristic pride. Now, hubristic pride is when we just think whatever we have, if it's an achievement or some kind of admiration, it's because of something innate about us. Oh, I'm just so smart and a genius. That's why I did well on that test. Or, um, oh, I'm just so good looking. That's why people like me. And it's something about me. Whereas authentic pride means we feel good about something we've accomplished because we've worked hard to accomplish that. We know we've put in the, the time and work. And this actually, this concept relates very much to the idea of fixed versus growth mindset, Uh, Carol Dweck's book that I talked about last year, um, this idea that in the fixed mindset, it means I just did well because I'm good and I'm smart or I'm great and nothing about the hard work. Whereas in the growth mindset, we realize, no, I worked hard and if I didn't do well, I can work harder. Uh, So it's interesting how this idea relates to this idea of pride also. And we also find that people who have hubristic pride are generally not liked very much by people around them. So if you're very cocky and think, oh, I'm just great because I'm me and that makes me amazing and better than other people, that's not very good. But we actually do respect people who have authentic pride, who because they've worked hard, they've accomplished something. You know, we feel that they deserve it. It's nothing negative or bad. And to have authentic pride is actually a good thing. You should feel good about the things that you've worked hard to achieve. And that can motivate you to continue working hard to achieve more good things. And you deserve that feeling. And so again, we see that this idea of pride, something I think when you hear that, oh, someone was very proud or there's a lot of pride in them, we think of that as a negative thing and it's considered one of the seven deadly sins, it's not all bad. It's not necessarily a bad thing. So all seven of them, he does get into research showing that they can actually be good things. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, And this idea that we'd like to make things black and white and just say, okay, this feeling is always bad or this kind of thought or behavior is always bad. But that's not the case. We need to sometimes relax and be a little slothful, have a lazy day. It's not a bad thing. Uh, And this idea that the only good things are productive things, that's not true. We have to express our anger sometimes. And even about lust, Um, he didn't really talk about this, but this idea that lust is a sin also creates shame related to sex. When people are having sex in a very healthy, normal context, for example, with their husbands and wives or in a relationship, people can feel ashamed because it's a bad thing to feel lust and to feel um, attracted to someone or to feel the sexual feeling or this libido. It's such a negative thing that we think we shouldn't enjoy sex. But of course that's not the case, but we make it a sin and then we assume it's always bad. And so he does a good job of showing that these seven deadly sins that we assume as all bad and evil and the road to hell are not necessarily so. And some of them are very healthy, adaptive and in the right context, good for us. And that's what we want to focus on. So it was an interesting book, um, the Science of Sin by Simon Laham. Simon Laham. If you haven't read it, I'd recommend that. And again, the book for this week, uh, a title that I was myself against and has the word against in it, but Against Empathy by Paul Bloom, I'll be talking about on next week's show. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Deloqui. We'll be right back. Back studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air.
2: Oh hi. Good afternoon. Um hi doctor. I'm having a feedback. I'm sorry.
1: I'm sorry? Um, Oh let me let me turn it down a little bit on our end maybe.
2: Oh gosh. Yeah, I, I I don't um yeah. Sorry about that. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Um oh good. Okay. Yeah, well, I was calling because um, I've been married now for 18 years, and I uh, realized that it's just not working. Um, my husband and me don't communicate well. I um, try to talk with him, but he—I just my energy just drops when I'm around him because he doesn't reciprocate the things that I talk to him about. Um, yeah. He, yeah. It's just really a stagn, uh, stagnating feeling, and um, and I just, yeah.
1: okay. <laughs> yeah. So you said eighteen years of marriage, and have you you always felt this way in the marriage?
2: Well, um, yeah, pretty much. It's always been a problem, um, but it, it's worn on me over the years now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, we did try therapy and he doesn't want to go to therapy anymore um, uh, but yeah I guess yeah. my question is I just want to get out of this relationship now and I, um, I I'm not sure how to go about it
1: okay well you know so to begin with you know you it takes two to tango so if you want to work on a relationship you can try a lot on your own and sometimes that can have an effect but really you need both people uh, to want to wanna, to make that effort and another thing you talk about is communication and it's very common for people to say the problem in the relationship is communication and often it is there is a lot of benefit in improving your communication techniques recognizing the bad ways that you communicate improving in good ways of communicating all that is very very important that every couple can benefit from uh, learning those things but at the same time often what happens is underneath the basis of the relationship is the reason why the communication is not working. So for example, if the two people don't care that much about each other, or if one of them is afraid of intimacy, then they're not going to even want to make an effort to communicate. So it's not just about not knowing the right techniques, the right words to use, the right ways to say things. It's actually more about the idea that there's something wrong in the relationship. So in your case, it could be... Communication is not working because of techniques, but it might be more that your husband either um, doesn't see your relationship the same way you do. He might have a fear of intimacy, doesn't want to get close. He might have an idea of what he wants that's very different from what you want. But it might not just be about communication techniques. It seems more about motivation to have a type of a relationship that you guys are dealing with. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, it seems like from what you said at the end of all of that, you've decided to, to walk away. Is that the case?
2: Yeah.
1: Okay. So you feel like you've tried everything to make it work and it's just not working?
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah.
1: Are there any children? Uh, do you guys have any kids?
2: Well, it's my second marriage, so the children are from my first marriage and they're grown. Now they're well into their 20s.
1: Okay. Um all right. So then, that that's not an issue. Then, so what do you think it is that's keeping you? You know, you're saying I want to know how to walk away from the the marriage. What's what's stopping you, or what? Why is that? It's never easy, but what is it that's stopping you?
2: Um, I guess i I don't want to hurt my. I don't want to crush my husband, really, because he he really is very like he has very like no skin i
1: guess hmm. you know you really he has just a, kind of a fear of intimacy and uh, yeah okay so if like he's your feeling is that he's so sensitive he can't handle it
2: yeah
1: Wh- which could be why he he has a hard time handling the types of conversations you want to have that are more serious or more intense and all that but exactly what that is i don't know now even if it's a relationship, but a marriage still, we, we can't stay with someone basically out of pity or out of fear of hurting them. Yeah. It, you know, it's not fair even to them to do that. Now, if you decide to get divorced, absolutely, I'm sure he'll be hurt and maybe, you know, use the word crushed. But that's on him to, to deal with that and figure out what to do and to take care of himself. You can't stay with him just to make him not get hurt. And in the long run, you're gonna hurt him probably more because you're gonna resent him and get angry with him, which maybe you already have, and you're gonna take it out on him. So it's really a lose-lose. Um, so that initial pain that we cause is difficult, but you're not responsible to, to take care of him. And you know, you can let him know, I need you to try to work on this relationship and this is what that means to me, going to therapy, possibly i think also going to his own therapy and and working on those things and if he's not willing to do those things then then that that's it you know he's made he's made his decision he has to be responsible for that too but you can't stay with someone just out of pity or fear of hurting them yeah well yeah the
2: thing is i don't love him um i don't think i ever actually did i thought he'd be a good father for my children and it didn't Turn out that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't actually really, I never actually loved him. I loved my first husband, but I, yeah, I'm, I guess I have a motivation issue at this point. I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, you know, I care about him like I would a brother, but I don't, yeah. I honestly don't love him. Um,
1: what, what led to the end of the first marriage?
2: Well, he, my first husband, um, had gotten into drugs and mm-hmm. um, that kind of exploded things, but there was that definitely a problem before then. He, he he's just very aloof and um, you know, really self-centered and I, I had an alcoholic family, so I, he, he was like a perfect match. Mm-hmm. For
1: him. Yeah. <laughs> so your own family, you had alcoholism in your own family, from your father?
2: Um, from my mother.
1: Mother, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you know, the the interesting thing to also look at is, you know, and especially because I'm talking to you even more so, but, you know, it's very easy to focus on your husband and say he has a fear of intimacy and, you know, he's the problem. But what you also have to be aware of is if you're staying with him 18 years in your previous marriage, you're saying similar things, and the way you just described your family briefly, you might also be afraid to get close. And it's Mm -hmm. easier for you to choose a man that won't let you get that close Because in a way, it's safer because you know they won't let you get that close. And two, you'd also put yourself off the hook because you say it's on them. They're the problem. I'm trying so hard to be close. I'm trying so hard to have a close relationship. And that way, never having to face your own fears of intimacy, of closeness, of getting to, to really be in a deep connected relationship. So that's something for you to think of and maybe a reason why you like staying in this kind of relationship. There's a comfort you have where it's not risky in that way. Um, so you might have your own ambivalence about getting that close to your husband or really to anyone.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm, after two marriages, I'm done, (laughs) I'm done with marriage, Um, but, yeah, I would, um, I would like to have, well, actually, I have met someone um, about a month and a half ago, which, it's not intimate at all, as far as you
1: know physically but I, I really love him and he's not yeah we just have uh, a problem
2: to being close well is he is he married also he's
1: married yeah okay well so i mean here you know you're you're creating even more complication well first of all you're hurting your husband because you know although you said it hasn't been physically intimate just the way you talk about him you even said that you love him i think that would constitute an emotional affair so to me that would be a form of infidelity um, so you're already hurting him so by thinking i'm gonna stay with him not to hurt him you're hurting him worse by staying with him and doing that so i would say you'd be much nicer to him to end the relationship have him deal with whatever pain and then go have whatever relationship or relate you know you want to have um, but also this is safe for you too because you're still married to him and then you're you know, loving this other guy, but of course you can't get that close to him either, really. There's these huge obstacles, you're both married, that are making it safe too. So um, I think it's worth looking at that f- for yourself. I was talking about him going to therapy, but yourself, even if you've already been, to go back in and really dig deeper about what's going on with, with you. Because you're just creating these tangles uh, of webs and relationships, um, but I think not getting at the core of what's going on for yourself.
2: Yeah, that's a good
1: point. Yeah, I am in therapy. Okay, good.
2: Um, uh, but yeah, I know it sounds like such a tangled web. Yeah. Uh, but but, um, but yeah, I just... Yeah, okay.
1: Well, in your therapy, do you talk about th- this other man?
2: Yeah,
3: I do. Okay, yeah. good.
1: Okay, good, because I want you to explore that and look at what's going on. But I want you to see that it's very easy to blame your husband for the lack of intimacy, but... You might be feeling that too, and in a relationship, uh, uh, extramarital relationship, people can feel all sorts of excitement. And because it's forbidden, it becomes even more exciting, and that makes them think it's more real. But very often, it's not. It could still be, in a way, a false way of feeling intimacy and excitement. So I would want you to look at that. And like I said, I'd really take seriously that, first of all, even if you didn't have this other relationship going on, you're hurting him more than helping him by staying with him. And we could never stay so- with someone out of pity, and you're better off and better to him if you end the marriage and then pursue whatever relationships you want. Mm
0: Wow.
2: Good point. Okay. Okay. Thank
1: you. Well, thanks for calling. Good luck.
2: Okay. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Take
1: care. (laughs) Bye-bye. You know, related to that, just with a few minutes, and it might be funny to talk about this on, on Valentine's day, but, you know, when it comes to ending a relationship, it's never easy. It's always going to be painful and uncomfortable. Um, and very often we will say it's about the other person that we don't end it. But often it is about us. And so we have to be aware that staying in relationship with someone that we don't love or we don't feel good about or we're doing it out of pity or we think we're being so nice to them, you're not being nice to them by staying with someone you don't want to be with. Uh, first of all, they don't deserve to be with someone who's being with them out of pity. And two, you prevent them from being with someone who actually will love them for who they are. Uh, they aren't somehow worse than you or not as good as you. You're just maybe a not a good match or whatever else is going on. And you should let them be and let them enjoy themselves and be with someone else. So yes, the pain at the beginning will always be there, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do something because of that initial pain. Sometimes the hardest thing and the right thing are the same thing. All right, let's go to our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Delacroix. We will be right back. Back, studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 let's go to another caller radio Hamra. you're on the air
4: um yes hi dr i just wanted to thank you for the time that you're taking um and listening to us
1: oh my pleasure I wanted,
4: thank you just wanted to bring up um Two um, questions that I have, I have uh, a fourth grader and a 13-year-old who is seventh grader right now, Mm -hmm. and um, my question is, um, they're both in gifted and talented, and they're both above grade uh, of what they're doing in school, Um, but the problem and struggle that we have, especially with my younger one, is um, when she comes home and um, she doesn't, um, for example, um, have, like, a quiz and she didn't get 100 percent she gets 70 or you know below the math teacher wants us to go over the quiz and then make sure that we see it and they discuss it the next day in school but um the fact that she doesn't want to sit down and listen to um us even talking to her about that and you know she gets she keeps being resentful and she keeps saying i did my best Uh, and um, she just doesn't want to sit down and listen. How can Mm -hmm. we help her out, making sure that, um, you know, um, we are there to help her out Mm -hmm. and enforce that um, she needs to actually do um, a little bit at home as well as, um, you know, what she's doing in school altogether?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, my thought would be, the initial thing when you said that was, that she actually doesn't want to face her mistakes. So it might be coming more from perfectionism than she doesn't want to listen. Um, Mm -hmm. That's how I'm hearing it. So I can imagine, even like when you say gifted and talented, and I remember all those kinds of things, and I've heard a lot of parents who talk about their kids being in those, sometimes that label, not that I'm saying it's bad, but when they focus too much on the label, it can be not a good thing. Uh, Because as I've talked about, and I actually brought it up today in the first segment, this idea of the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset is really important. So the idea that you're gifted and talented, and because of that, you're going to do well, uh, can be harmful rather than the idea that, okay, maybe you're gifted and talented, but that means you have to work even harder to make sure you develop those gifts and talents and to do well, you still have to work hard, is very important. So my concern would be is that your 10-year-old, there's a perfectionism and she might be used to doing really well and getting things right. And then when she gets them wrong, she has a hard time looking at the mistakes. Do you think Does that seem to fit with her?
4: It does. It okay. does in everything. She yeah. Gets really upset when she's not basically winning and she's also in sports Mm -hmm. and um she gets it gets into her and uh, we try to send the message to both of them as long as we see you're doing your best it doesn't matter what your best is we're here to help you out as well Mm -hmm. as school we try not to interfere or making sure that they're not judged for what they bring home but also, I don't see anything happening at home. Like, we have a struggle for her to even sit down and do her homework. Not to mention that she's outside of the home at least 17 hours for sports and other activity, which is not too many. But also, I wanted to make sure that she, the confrontation, How can we calm this confrontation out for us even to help her out, you know, to go and see, do whatever um, computer-based training is that you have to do that is assigned to you. Not to be struggling, rather for her to be anxious about doing it and finishing it Mm -hmm. and, you know, put it away and then go back to whatever she wants to do. Either it's watching TV or being on the computer. These days it's hard for, um, you know, um parents to be in a moderate world without dictating them that we're not trying to do we're trying to leave it open for them but also i think at some point we left it too open that (laughs) they just struggle in between
1: well yeah maybe and and so you know she also has an older sibling and so there could be issues of the competitiveness and the way you you said they're both gifted and talented so my guess is she does really well too so there could be a feeling of pressure it seems like from what you're saying, you guys try not to put that pressure on them. But inevitably, that pressure can exist when you have a very high achieving older sibling and the younger sibling, you guys are going to have those same expectations. And it seems like she was meeting those expectations. But it's exactly what we're talking about with that fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. So I would actually recommend if you want to read that book or at least read the section on parenting um, a, a child. Related to that. So it's by Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K. And the book is called Mindset, because it seems like she is in that fixed mindset, this idea that I'm gifted, I'm, I'm, I'm really smart, so I do well. And then so when she doesn't do well, it really freaks her out, because it's this idea that, well, this is as far as my skills can go. And the perfectionism means she doesn't want to look at her mistakes. So when we have a growth mindset, when we get something wrong, we say, okay, I want to understand, I want to learn, I want to grow. But when we have that fixed mindset and our our self-value, our self-worth is, you know, really every test is either going to make us say, okay, we're still good or we're a failure. It's very hard for her to look at her mistakes. She gets too afraid to say, look what I did wrong, because doing something wrong means I'm not smart, not I made a mistake or I need to work harder. It's, I'm not good enough. So I want you to be aware of that when it comes to this battle over going over, for example, her quiz where she made a mistake. Try to see where she's likely coming from, which is it's just, it's too scary for her to, to look at those errors.
4: Gotcha. Also, about her older sister, mm-hmm. um, we don't, as as I mentioned, we don't interfere uh, in what she's doing at school because she's on top of everything herself. She is principal role, and she is actually a, a straight-A student in um, gifted and talented level, even though she's just seventh grade during high school math. And the pressure these days is a lot on these kids, but we try to keep it balanced. But if she um, um, brings um, a B home by any chance, she gets very upset. Mm-hmm. And she really, I don't want her to have the expectation too high for her to have the anxiety. She says that um, it's because you guys expect from me, but I don't know how we showed it, but it, apparently we didn't show the way we wanted her to be um to see it how can we make sure that she's not going through anxiety because growing and getting into more stuff in a lot of you know high school um dramas that we hear from everywhere in competitive um, neighborhoods that we try not to be in one but we Mm -hmm. apparently are how can we balance this
1: well you know one important part is to continue that conversation with her when she says you guys do put pressure on on me, and probably her sister too, because clearly we're seeing her sister is dealing with some anxiety, is to ask her how. How is it? Maybe you don't realize that you guys are doing it. Uh, the expectation might just be you guys get A's every time, and we expect that. And so they feel that if they don't do it, they're going to let you down. And so I would talk with her more about that. How do I make you feel? pressure how do I put expectations on you and so you have to approach it non-defensively because in the way you're telling me it's like we don't put pressure we don't put pressure but clearly you guys are Um, and and we want to communicate with them to see what it is that how she feels you put pressure on her you know sometimes these kids that are high achievers there is a lot of pressure also in where they the gate program and the different programs they put them in this idea that they have to do well and I'm very disappointed in the way uh, college entry has become. It's become so competitive from even you know middle school to elementary school of just preparing them and you have to have a certain type of application and you have to do this and that and they're going to look at your grade. It's just getting crazy and I think it's really stressing kids out too much and parents are getting involved and spending all this money to try to make them candidates that are going to do well in, in the application process and I would really try to pull that back. You know, Your job isn't to raise good students, it's to raise uh, two girls who feel good about themselves, who love themselves, and who want to just do good for being good. You know, So you don't want to put that achievement pressure on them in any way. And you have to be aware that you might be doing that more than you realize.
4: Gotcha. So as far as um, like for the little one to work with her at home, if she doesn't want to sit down and go over the test, what is the reaction that you think we should have? Well, I wouldn't make...
1: I wouldn't make it a battle, you know, try not to make it too much of a push and pull. Even I would try to level with her, you know, talk with her in a calm way and say, you know, I, you know, I get the feeling you don't, it, it, you are so used to getting things right that when you get them wrong, you don't like to, to look at it. Or maybe you think that's part of the issue, you know, so try to just in a soft way, talk to her about that issue because perfectionism is a really serious uh, issue that to have because when someone really is a perfectionist a lot of people say they're a perfectionist and they're not but genuinely when someone is um there is so much tied into their self-worth with every performance and every performance it's either just relief that i didn't fail or failure which means i'm not good enough i'm bad i'm unlovable and all these other things that come with it so it seems like for your maybe both of your kids but i can see it even more with the 10 year old and the way you talked about her with these quizzes Every moment is tied into the performance. If I'm not performing well, I'm nothing. And so even, you know, with the sports, it's it's very competitive. I, I wish she did something where there wasn't really results involved, even some kind of art that was just free flowing. She's
4: very artistic. Okay, she good. Very artistic. She
1: loves it. Good. I would almost maybe emphasize that more and not just focus and you know, so I want you to focus on the growth mindset and that's what I was saying take a look at that book. That when she draws something nice. You don't say, oh my gosh, you're Picasso, you're the best, you're the same. Wow, you must have worked hard to put that, you know, how did you do this part? What kind of work was involved? So you fo- fo- focus more on the effort than on her artistic ability and talent. Because a lot of parents think, and overall is a nice sounding thing to tell our kids they're geniuses and they're, you know, special and they're so gifted and it's, you know, they're amazing and it's so easy for them that these are compliments and of course in a way they are but they're compliments that come with some weight we don't want to just tell them you're doing well because you're a genius we want to say you did well because you studied hard gosh you must have worked so hard to get an a on that test to learn all those words that's what we want to focus on is the effort rather than the final product or their their gifts so even when she draws You can say, wow. Or you can say, I really feel your emotions in that. To me, that feels different. Like I feel something when I see your painting. But I think you must have worked so hard. There's so much things going on in here that takes a lot of effort. So I'd I'd focus on effort rather than achievement or uh, her skills or talents.
4: Yeah, thank you very much i got my answer um just one more question sure. is there any way we can um listen to replay for this so my husband listens to this absolutely
1: know? yeah so probably tonight i usually upload it onto my soundcloud page and also uh it goes to my podcast on itunes which is free so either one of those options if you go to soundcloud you just search dr fatty hulaqui and you'll you can find my page and then this show probably i'll upload it late tonight maybe or tomorrow. So. By tomorrow, it almost definitely will be up. Thank
4: you. Thank you very much. Your sure. um, advisors are genuine
1: gin- and very helpful to <laughs> oh. a lot of parents. Oh, I'm thank you. I hope they are. You, being yeah, a parent point is. Right at the point. Good. Well, good. And being a parent is probably the hardest job you'll ever have, and it's not easy. <laughs> and so you have these two, you know, clearly they're very, they are gifted and they are talented, just like you. Know, that's why they're in the GATE program. But I want, you know, your job is going to be even more to make them feel good about who they are. Uh, no matter what they do, you know, emotional intelligence is going to take them further than IQ. And so, I, you know, I would do everything I can, all parents, not well, whoever your kids are, but to focus more on their EQ than their IQ and their achievement. Because if they have a good EQ, if they feel good about themselves, if they love themselves, if they want to work hard and they feel good about that and they have good relationships, they're going to be far more successful than if we just focus on achievement and, you know, doing good things and, getting A's and all those things that a lot of times parents think is their responsibility or are signs that they're doing good at parenting. So uh, I would really just focus on, on that with your two, two young girls.
4: Absolutely. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You
1: too. Thanks for your call. Yeah. So that idea of the, the growth mindset fixed mindset is so critical because as I mentioned with her, a lot of times parents, they might've thought, well, when I was a kid, My parents told me I was stupid and I was dumb and I was not good enough and all these negative things. And so we think the exact opposite is the best thing to do just to tell your kids they're perfect and they're amazing and they're the best ever and they're the smartest and they're geniuses and all those types of words. And sometimes there can be times for those, but should be few and far between. They do sound very nice and everyone likes that feeling. But with that feeling also comes a pressure when I tell you. You got an A because you're a genius. Then the next time you take a test, if you get to a question you don't know, you're like, oh, they were wrong. I'm not a genius. I'm not that smart. This shows that this is where my limit is in my skills and my abilities, and I can't get past this. And they feel like giving up, and actually, they don't want to try harder. They don't want to try harder things, and they want to take the easier route. But if you say, oh, you got that A because you worked hard, I'm so proud of you for the effort you put in that A. Then they know next time, even if they get a B, they didn't get a B because they're dumb or stupid or not good enough. They got a B because they didn't try hard enough and they need to try harder. And really with a lot of things, this is the case. When you have children in elementary school and middle school, yes, of course, their abilities make a difference. But most of the time, if a child tries really hard, they're probably going to be able to get a B or an A in any class that they're in. If they really, really try their hardest. Um, But a very smart kid can get a bad grade if they don't put the effort in so we want to praise the effort not praise the skill or ability or something innate because that allows them to continue to work harder And when they face a challenge rather than being afraid of this proving that they're not good enough or they're not what people thought they were they just say hey this is this just means i get to work harder to achieve more so that that idea of the growth versus fixed mindset is really an important one especially for our kids but even in how we deal with ourselves in our own lives, okay, we've reached another commercial break. Studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. You're listening to In Session with Doctor Fatty Delawqi. We, we'll be right back. Welcome back, Studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. Let's go to our next caller, Radio Hamra. You're on the air.
0: Hello. Yes, hi. Uh, hi, thank you for your time.
1: Sure, thanks for calling.
0: And, uh, I'm uh, very happy I can talk to you. Likewise. Uh, well, my question is about uh, the child during the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm pregnant and uh, I feel sometimes low in energy and uh, depressed. Um, that's why i call you and uh, I would like to know what shall I do during the pregnancy to have a um, healthy and normal baby. And uh, yeah, that's it.
1: Okay. Um, well, you know, any of these questions you're asking me, I definitely say talk to your primary physician who is working with you during the pregnancy. Because that, that's all very important for uh, he or she to know and to talk to them about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, depression during pregnancy can happen. People can feel that way, and just being pregnant takes a lot of your energy, and you can become low energy. So those things are not necessarily something to be really concerned about. Is this your first pregnancy? Uh,
0: well, it's uh, my third pregnancy, but uh, I had two miscarriages hmm. before, and uh, but this one is uh, my first baby.
1: Uh huh. Okay, how many months pregnant are you? Uh, seven and a half okay well congratulations your, your baby will be probably around april then yeah
0: yes
1: it is. okay maybe you'll share I'm, I'm in april too so maybe i'll get to share a birthday with your baby um but that's very exciting that you you're you know going through this but depression during pregnancy can happen you know we talk a lot about uh postpartum depression and you might be at risk for that too so you have to be ready for that um but you can get pregnant during uh sorry depressed during pregnancy also so that could be what you're experiencing have you talked to your doctor about what you're feeling
0: Uh, i talked to him and he's telling me that uh, it's normal and uh, it might because of the concerns that you have uh, for the baby Mm -hmm. and it might be because of the previous miscarriages that you had but um well uh, the things that make me concerned is uh before the pregnancy, I sometimes feel uh, my mood is swinging, and uh, well, uh, it's not a uh, long time that I'm. Uh, uh, fa- I became familiar with your programs and your father, mm-hmm. so when I listen to your uh, programs, uh, I, I found that uh, this might be a psych problem when your mood is uh, swinging. So that's why, um, because sometimes I felt depressed, and sometimes I was. Uh, some days I, uh, I were very happy. So, uh, but during the pregnancy, I feel uh, I'm more stable. But I'm like, uh, some some days I don't have uh, any energy to do anything at all. Mm-hmm. So that's
1: what, yeah. That's what, well, uh, you yeah. know, you talked about the mood <laughs> swings, but the way you described them, it didn't sound like bipolar to me uh, because bipolar isn't just about sometimes people think well I was was sad one day I was happy the next day that means I'm bipolar but in bipolar disorder we're talking about periods of time where you can you'll feel very depressed and you can even go through a serious depression but then also periods where you if you're manic it's not just that you feel good or you're kind of happy you have symptoms such as a decreased need for sleep inflated sense of self and self-esteem that's almost too much Uh, senses of grandiosity, you might even do risky behaviors and get yourself in trouble because of your being impulsive, so it doesn't seem like that's what you're describing. It seems like maybe you have some depression and then other days you feel okay, but not necessarily, um, you know, it's like you're going below a baseline where we might call like an average mood and then you come back to that normal, but it doesn't seem like you go really high. Does that make sense? Is that how it, it seems?
0: you told about the self esteem uh, i'm not sure is it uh, the the situation that i have in uh, um, the category of self esteem or not but uh, if i want to describe for you um i'm i'm, I'm living in uh, one of the european countries mm-hmm. uh, it's about 5 years and um i could uh, go to university and it's my first year but uh, sometimes i feel uh, like i don't want to talk to my classmates when there is a group discussion because mm-hmm. i feel uh, um if my language is uh, not appropriate and i use um, a wrong uh, structure or grammar so they what they are uh, what they might think about me mm. and so it's uh, like a barrier that i uh, try to um um participate less in the discussions and uh, i'm not sure if this one um, can i put it in the self-esteem category or not uh, but uh, in in my country i was a sociable girl and um, uh, i was a approachable person so i don't know is it because of the situation that i'm placed in or um totally i uh, i'm low in self-esteem if it's Put in the category of self esteem. Mm. Also about the um, sleep, as you told, uh, I had a good, good sleep in, in Iran, but uh, from the, the time that I moved in the in, in the country that I'm living, um, I can't sleep uh, well in the night. Uh, sometimes in the night I wake up and I can't. Uh, sleep uh, after that and i i'm awake for two three hours
3: hmm. and
0: then um, it takes me long to um sleep again
1: that that can also yeah. be a sign of a, a part of anxiety but also depression so you i'm getting the feeling the way you're talking that the move was very difficult for you and whether it's a full-on depression or just made you more depressed, that that's possibly what you're dealing with. Sleep disturbances are, are often a big sign of depression. So it could be that. And one thing you should know is that sometimes something like postpartum depression, it begins during pregnancy. So as I said before, of course, I want you to be aware of it now, but also um, after you're, you give birth that you might be prone to postpartum depression, and so you have to be ready for that, okay? Um, But going back to what you said, if you were sociable before and now due to the language issue, it's harder for you, it can be self-esteem, but more in the sense I'm hearing it is that it's maybe difficult for you, as it can be for most people, to to struggle with something. You don't like the feeling of being wrong. Again, most people don't like that. And so you're almost afraid to risk being wrong and, and speaking, and you'd rather just stay more quiet, and so there could be something related to self-esteem or even um, a, a form of perfectionism or wanting to always be right. That might be hard for you, rather than facing. Okay, my English isn't, or whatever language it is you're speaking, there isn't so good, but I can still manage, and I'm going to get things wrong, but I'll get my my point across, and that can be okay. So I'm hearing it more more that way. But it seems like moving to this new country has been difficult for you. I mean. Right. It, it seems like it's taken a toll on you, as far as socially and the, the struggles you're going through. Do you feel that that it's been a hard, a hard move for you?
0: No, it wasn't hard. Okay. Most, but um, but at the first, it was. Uh, uh, I had uh, hard days to uh, stay here and uh, adapt myself to the country and the culture. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, did you move there with uh, your partner, or did you guys meet there? Um,
0: I married, and then I moved here.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, You know, so maybe you're saying it hasn't been that hard lately, but I get the feeling the language is still something that makes you struggle or not feel as good. Uh, I would also agree before, I wanted to make sure I commented on this, the two miscarriages are very likely a big part of what you're feeling now, too. Um, with the depression, one thing about miscarriages, oftentimes people will minimize the significance of what someone goes through in a miscarriage. I, I've heard people say, "Well, the baby was never born, or nothing really happened, or it's not a big deal." But very often, for many people, especially the women who experience it themselves, they can they can feel a lot. They can become depressed about it, and they oftentimes have to go through a grieving process like you would losing anyone because. Um, especially for the mother, there's a connection they already have with the baby basically from conception, but when the baby is gr- living and growing inside of them and all the hopes and dreams and already thoughts they have for that baby. So I wouldn't minimize that. I'm not I'm not sure if you have or you haven't done that, but sometimes there is a lot of grief that has to be done for those those miscarriages. Do you feel like you had the appropriate or you had enough time to go through feeling sad about the miscarriages that you really were able to process those feelings related to what you went through. Uh,
0: I think I could cope with this uh, problem that happened for me. Okay. Um, I mean, I couldn't. Uh, I wasn't like a person that um, focus on this problem and um, always blame myself or think about it. I, I, I think I could cope with this
1: problem. Okay. Okay. Well, then I'm hoping that's the case, and it may be. It, it was uh, just for anyone listening, also just realizing this idea that miscarriage can be a very almost traumatic experience for, for someone. And so not to minimize that, but I'm sure that creates an anxiety in you. I hope maybe it doesn't. I want to, don't want to give that to you because of what you went through about this pregnancy, going all the way to term and having this baby, I can imagine it added to that. Did you feel that anxiety when it came to the pregnancy or did you feel calm about how things would go?
0: Um, I think um, your diagnosis is uh, very accurate about anxiety. Uh-huh. Um, I feel I had anxiety uh, um, before the pregnancy, but uh, I'm not sure I, I'm feeling this more than the previous time, previous back okay. pregnancy, or oh, it's the same. But um, for example, some, sometimes when I want to uh, talk to a um, um english speaker um i i feel uh, my face becomes red and i feel very hot and mm-hmm. uh, i just want to talk and uh, finish the conversation and uh, after that i feel oh now i can't breathe so I, I i think this should be a sign of uh, anxiety yeah
1: indeed. well there's some anxiety there like a a uh, social anxiety but you know and maybe related like I was saying before almost like a perfectionism like you don't want to be wrong and when you're learning a new language or especially if you're in a new country even if you were learning the language before you got there you have to be ready that you're going to make mistakes all the time you know i when i speak farsi i make mistakes regularly to the point where it's it's pretty funny for people who talk to me in farsi and Uh, Sometimes it can bother me, but overall I I can enjoy it too. So you have to be ready that you're going to still struggle with the language. It's never going to be the same for you as someone else who was a native speaker born and raised there, you know, learning and speaking the language. It's always going to be a challenge, but not to try not to let that hold you back, that you have to accept that I'm going to keep making mistakes and that's okay. And that's expected. And that's the only way I'm going to get better is to, to keep talking. But it does seem like there's this feeling that you have to be right or not be wrong. And that's what I mean by the perfectionism that might be keeping you from, from you know, putting yourself out there or keeping you from actually expressing yourself because you're afraid to say something wrong. Mm. You know, even actually, I should say this as I'm saying that the fact that you called in and are talking in English, that's actually a great sign. It shows that you're okay taking that kind of risk and we're, we're okay with that. And you're obviously speaking just fine. But, you know, I hope you recognize that that's actually good. It shows you're not completely afraid to do it. Um, you're able to take that kind of a risk.
0: But, uh, you know, my um, main concern is rather than i uh, I thinking uh, may, uh, I might uh, make some mistakes and uh, I might get wrong, is uh, more about um, if I'm uh, involved in a conversation and um, I um, had a um, wrong perception about the topic of the con- uh, the conversation and uh, I start talking about something else so they might uh, think I'm a foolish person something like that so the main concern is about the understanding of their copy and, and their topic <laughs> uh, although sometimes I know that uh, it's uh, I know uh, what they are talking about exactly but uh, again I I have a fear inside my own so I'm not sure what's What's this? Is it like anxiety? Is it perfectionism?
1: Well, that sounds like a, a, it, it could then? be some perfectionism, but it definitely sounds like social anxiety. Now, for you, the main issue is the language. But in general, one of the um, one of the things that people with social anxiety can feel is that I'm afraid to talk. I'm afraid to look stupid, or I'm afraid to say the wrong thing, or that people are going to look at me and think I'm something negative. That's usually one of the parts of social anxiety: is that fear of looking stupid, being embarrassed, you know, being thought of in a certain way. Mm -hmm. So it seems like you're dealing with some of that social anxiety. It seems like it's partially fueled by language um, because that seems to be the bigger concern. I'm not going to understand what people are talking about or I'm going to miss the theme of the topic of the conversation and go in the wrong direction. Um, But so that definitely seems to be a social anxiety. Now, you said you were very sociable before back in Iran. Did you ever have issues with social anxiety then not at all okay so it seems like the language plays a big part of it, but you know it's an interesting kind of combination at least the way i'm hearing it where there's social anxiety but then the perfectionism too that you're afraid to, to get it wrong well it's okay you're going to get it wrong sometimes um it, that's part of the process of being in a different country there's a cultural side too it's not just language it's just sometimes you might miss things that other people are going to get because that the culture is going to be a little bit new to you too. So accepting that will be very important. So that's why I'm saying I feel a little bit of the perfectionism there, that you don't want to make a mistake, but it clearly sounds like a social anxiety that you're dealing with. Um, Of course, therapy can be helpful for things like that. So if you'd like, you can go. I'm always a big fan of that. Especially, I think you're dealing with a lot. Maybe you seem to be handling it fine, but the two miscarriages and then having another baby Another pregnancy and then having the baby that, that could be a lot. And as I mentioned before, there's a good chance you're at risk for postpartum depression and you're already experiencing it some depression now. And postpartum depression can be very, uh, you know, difficult to deal with, especially because uh, most moms they feel like, okay, I'm supposed to be the happiest ever. I just had a baby, the most exciting thing, the most happy thing I'm supposed to have. And if I'm depressed, somehow that makes me a bad mom or makes me bad. Or I should only feel happy. But that's not the case. There's so many things going on. Just life is changing. Even hormonal changes. So much is happening. So just be aware that that's something you might be at risk for. And and talk to your doctor about that. And even if you want to start in therapy. It might not be a bad idea. But you might be at risk for postpartum depression. And it's a very serious and real thing. But there's treatments that can help you. So I hope you'll take advantage of that and give yourself all of that. And when it comes to the the anxiety of talking, hopefully you can be more accepting of the challenges you're facing and that it's going to be that way. And maybe it'll always be that way. You'll never be a native speaker. That's something you'll just have to accept. But I get a feeling of a perfectionism um, along with the social anxiety. So if I were you, I would go into therapy if you haven't already and, and, and look at some of these things and help get yourself ready to have the baby Uh, preparing yourself emotionally and mentally the best way you can.
0: Okay, so uh, you suggest that I get some uh, sessions with uh,
1: a therapist. Yeah, I think that's a good idea to look at all these things that are going on because I think, you know, there's a lot you're dealing with. Being a new parent itself is going to be a lot of stress too, but because you're already feeling depressed, that would tell me that's going to put you more at risk for postpartum depression. So, I think it would be a good idea to kind of try to do your best to to take care of yourself the best that you can. I know you mentioned something about doing what you can for the baby. uh, Always, for the rest of your life, taking care of yourself is going to be one of the best things you can do for your kids. So, start now.
0: Okay. And one more question. Do you think, is there any tip that I can help myself uh, with the problem that you told? It's perfectionism or social anxiety? Or... I need to uh, ask my doctor to refer me
1: to a um, clinic or any session? Well, I think, you know, as I mentioned, the acceptance is going to be a big part of it, that accept that you're going to make lots of mistakes, that that's, that's how it's mm-hmm. going to be. And again, it could always be that way. You're always going to be a non-native speaker, and that's okay. But you have to accept that that's going to be part of the process is you're going to make mistakes you're going to get it wrong and even you know it doesn't mean you're bad that's kind of maybe where you brought up the self-esteem there could be some connection there where you feel like you have to either be doing good or you're bad because even if you can even laugh with it that would be a lot better you know if you can just say oh i got it wrong what did i say and that could be kind of funny like i said if i sometimes i say things wrong in farsi that are so wrong and bad that it makes someone laugh and and to me you know Sometimes like maybe I do get offended, but usually I'm laughing with them because I think it is pretty funny and they explain to me what I said wrong and I can enjoy it. So if you realize you getting things wrong in English doesn't mean you're bad in any way or you're not smart or you're not good or you're not whatever the thought is that comes to your mind. It's just when you're a non-native speaker, you're going to get things wrong all the time and that's just part of the process. So that's where the perfectionism and the self-esteem come into play with the social anxiety. Um, I would recommend therapy is going to be a lot better than any one or two tips I can tell you right now. So I'd hope you take it more seriously. Again, not just for this, that's important, but especially with the depression you say you're feeling during the pregnancy that could also um, lead into postpartum depression. I would say definitely go see someone and get that help that you deserve right now.
0: Thank you. Yeah. And uh, may I ask uh, what shall I do during the pregnancy to have a healthy or normal baby? Is there any a specific thing during this? I mean, I think, you, you know, know more taking more care of yourself the best also, you yeah.
1: can, you know, there's nothing more I can tell you than what it seems like, you know, t- just do what the doctor is telling you to do, taking care of yourself. I would say the therapy, mm-hmm. you know, you want to start therapy and be, even you can find, ask your, your doctor if uh, he or she knows someone who does therapy with people who are pregnant? Because it could be important to be aware of that and deal with those issues. So I would say that's that would be my biggest recommendation. Because you're feeling depressed, um, but listening to your doctor is probably better than anything I can tell you right now.
0: Sure. Yeah. And uh, just one last question: Can you add, uh, can you um, suggest me any book that I can read about um, different stage of uh, child uh, development? Because uh, um, as I uh, listen to your program, well, uh will call you or your dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I found out that um, children during a uh, different uh, stage of their life, like 0 to 3 or 3 to 7, they uh, show different uh, characteristics or personality, mm-hmm. and we should uh, behave them differently. Um, yeah.
3: And well, uh, because
0: n- we don't know this uh, specific uh, characteristics that they, sh- they they show so uh, we don't know how to deal with them. sure so i
1: would like a pretty you know i'll say one good one that's general and looking at different milestones it's the the yale child study center guide to understanding your child
3: year old.
1: So the yale so it's yale university so yale child study center guide to understanding child. your child
0: a study center to
1: Guide to understanding your child. Guide
0: understanding your child, and is it um, mm-hmm. give us uh, also some tips that uh, during different uh, stages how should we behave with them?
1: Um, I, you know that one's. I think it, it does have some of that too. There are so many parenting books, but you know that one's a good one just to give you some ideas of uh, of things to look for in developmental things so that one's more general in that way so i'd recommend that one's a it's pretty long too but you can it even starts from before uh, birth so that might not be a bad one to start with
0: great. thank you so sure much.
1: nice talking with you good luck with everything
0: thank you All thank right. you for sure. your advice and for your help. oh
1: it's been my pleasure have a great day take care thank you you okay. too bye-bye, bye-bye. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310 441 You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310 4410555. You know, it is Valentine's Day, so definitely have to talk about that at least for a few minutes today. Uh, And I know many people talk about it's a cheesy holiday, it's a commercialized holiday. Uh, Why do I have to show love in a specific way on this day? And I wouldn't really disagree with with any of that. It definitely is a highly commercialized holiday. And really, especially here in the United States, what holiday isn't commercialized, right? If we get Christmas, Uh, Thanksgiving becomes all about Black Friday, Um, you know, all these holidays, it's something to sell more things. So I get all of that. And especially that's a complaint you hear more often from guys, especially in relationships, because they might feel a pressure uh, to be romantic and spend money and all that. And they don't like that. And I can understand that. But what I usually say is that no, romance should not be forced on one particular day, but you don't have to have one Valentine's Day. Uh, or you don't have to even celebrate it on Valentine's Day. But if you don't, then I would say at least have 10 Valentine's Days throughout the year, meaning that other days where you express your romance in a very strong way. Um, And I had Dr. Jennifer Galvin on the show Monday. And related to that, what's important in how you show love is that you show love in a way that your partner feels loved. So I know the, the tradition for Valentine's Day or the expectation is, you know, roses and chocolates and maybe more, but especially roses, for example, red roses is pretty common expectation, but maybe that's not what your partner wants. And of course, one thing I don't like about Valentine's Day is very much the holiday becomes this idea of the man getting the woman something, but of course we need to have a reciprocity in in how things are done in the relationship. So there should be gifts given both ways, um, thoughtful and things that your partner will appreciate. And to me, those are more important than the traditional gifts you forced, you feel like you're forced to get or you're supposed to get. So be aware of that. Think about that, whether it's Valentine's Day or some other day, how you show your love. And really showing your love to your partner should be something that you gladly do, that you want to do. And even when I was talking about the five love languages on Monday night's show, a very important part is that the person has to have a desire to show love to their partner. And it should be a strong desire. It shouldn't feel forced it shouldn't feel you know something they don't want to do they should want to do it you should be going to sleep each night thinking how can i be a better partner to my husband or my wife or my boyfriend or my girlfriend how can i love them more how do i make sure they feel more loved that should be something that you yourself want to do not something that you should feel bad about and so you should actually ask your partner about that and i actually think taking the test online for the five love languages is a good step because it helps you understand yourself and your partner. Of course, the test is not foolproof and it doesn't mean if you take it at different times, you won't get different results. I myself took it um, just recently after when we we're talking about the book and took it, I think a year, two years ago, and my results were a little bit different, not by much, but a little bit. So it's not like it's set in stone. So don't take this as something like a blood test that is, is a firm proof that this is your love language, but it can give you an understanding of yourself and if it makes sense for you and you can share it with your partner and vice versa and you say, okay, well, my partner likes acts of service. So let me make sure I show love in that way, or my partner likes words of affirmation, so let me keep that in mind and say lots of positive things to them to make sure they feel good, to make sure they feel loved because that desire to love your partner, that's something that you should be doing, not just for your partner, but also for yourself. When you're more loving towards your partner, you're going to feel good. And when you're more loving towards your partner, your relationship becomes better, which feels better for you too. So it's something that should be an internal thing. Um, lots of times partners come in and their issue is, oh, they want me to, he wants me to do this or she wants me to do that, and they're annoyed. But already that shows that something's missing in the relationship where there isn't this desire to give their partner what they want. If your partner says, I'd like this, First and foremost, we have to make sure we don't take that personally. They're saying, this is something I like. It doesn't mean you're a bad partner how you are or what you were doing was wrong, but they're saying, this is something I enjoy. This is something that feels good to me. This is something that makes me feel loved. And if we don't take it personally, that makes it a lot easier for us not to get defensive and to react to that or even become in a way rebellious to that. We don't want to do what they're saying we should do or they want, but we want to make them feel good. So hopefully that leads to us saying, okay, from now on I want to take steps to show them love in that way. So today's Valentine's Day and to all the couples out there that are celebrating, uh, going to restaurants that are going to have overly priced menus and overly packed and not having a lot of space. Yes, I know some of those things are kind of annoying, but I hope you have a nice Valentine's Day and enjoy that together. And again, there should never be a shortage of days that you show your love to each other. It doesn't have to just be today, it should be every day. It should be all the time. Uh, Romance, we think of it as these grand gestures, the roses, uh, the expensive trips or expensive gifts. We think of that as romance. But what the research shows us is that true romance is built on little moments, small gestures asking each other how you're doing, sending a little note or a text saying, I'm thinking of you, running an errand for your partner. Those little things are actually what romance is built on. And sometimes we think it has to be those moments that we can post on Instagram and Facebook to make other people jealous or to make them think our love is so strong. But real romance often is is hidden, is unseen. It's the small things that go a long way. So yes, today, You can spoil each other and get each other gifts and do all those nice things. But don't forget that the true romance, the true uh, building blocks of love that make your relationship last are going to be the small things that show your partner every day over and over again, that you care about them, that you love them, That they mean something to you, that they're important to you, that they're special to you, and that you want to make them feel good. So, happy Valentine's Day to everyone out there. We're reaching our last commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty DeLockwe. We'll be right back. back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. So for the last segment, I was talking about Valentine's Day, but wanted to talk a bit about relationships because it is Valentine's Day. And uh, of course, people want to know always about how to make a good relationship, how to make love last and all those those good questions. And the truth is there's no easy answer. So to begin with, uh, if you hear anyone telling you, here's the secret to the one secret to making finding someone, or if you do this, you're going to find a good partner, you're going to live happily ever after. It's never going to be that simple. It's going to be a lot harder than that. So to begin with, we have to accept just like life is difficult and not easy, being in a relationship is not easy either. It's going to be hard. And that acceptance isn't so we become pessimistic and negative, because when I say it's going to be hard, it doesn't mean it's not going to be worth it. Just like being a parent is going to be very hard. But most parents will tell you that although it's very difficult, stressful, challenging, all those things, it's the best thing that's ever happened to them. So a relationship can be the same way and hopefully should be the same way. So by saying that it's going to be difficult, the reason why I stress that point is so that people realize when it gets challenging, when it gets hard, that doesn't necessarily mean you're in the wrong relationship. That doesn't necessarily mean this is a bad thing and you need to end the relationship. It's because relationships are hard. So that being said, at the same time, we want to understand that, um, of course, pain doesn't mean it's a good relationship either. So the challenge of a relationship doesn't mean that we're going to be continuously hurt by our partner because unfortunately people can use that same logic I was just using to say, well, that's why I'm supposed to stay in this relationship and make it work. And they can stay in physically abusive, emotionally abusive relationships, or just really wrong and bad relationships because they say it's supposed to be hard. So this is one of the challenges we always have is, is the pain I'm feeling the good kind of pain from growth and discomfort that is good? Or is it pain that is damage, that's hurting me, that's, that's going to be hurtful and doesn't mean I'm getting better or stronger. But coming back to that original point, that it's going to be hard, we have to accept that. And basically what you're saying when you enter a committed long-term relationship, and especially if you decide to get married, is I'm willing to go through this rocky journey with you. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But I think it's going to be worth it to go through it with you. And I'm choosing to go through it with you. And that's a big deal when you make that decision. But so our ideas of happily ever after... Um, I always say happily ever after is possible, but you have to work at it. You have to create happily ever after. It's not just you found your soulmate; the rest comes easily. So, no matter who you choose, and of course you want to choose wisely, it's going to be a challenge. You're going to have to to make things work. Now, to create the love, a love that lasts, a few things we have to do. And I touched a bit about this on Monday night, but a very important one is recognizing that your partner is someone that you're going to continue to get to know for the rest of your life. So sometimes I like to say you should be dating your whole life. And by that, I mean, you're always in the process of still trying to get to know the person. Um, You're still trying to be nice to them, impress them in good ways, do good things for them. You don't give up on uh, trying to make them feel good. For many people, when they look at marriage as the end goal, or getting married, they think, well, I got married, now I can give up. I don't have to take care of how I look or how I am in the relationship and I don't have to try to do nice things for my partner. I don't have to impress them anymore. And of course, this comes from this mindset of marriage as trying to get someone rather than marriage and a relationship as something you create with someone. So that never goes away. You really should feel like you're dating your whole life. That should never stop. You take each other out. You do nice things for each other. You care about each other and you pay attention to how you present yourself. Your your partner should love you um, no matter what's going on in a way, but it doesn't mean you don't take care of yourself and try to look good for one another to keep things uh, exciting in that way too. That's not something that should disappear. Again, you, you got married, but it doesn't mean you're done. The work is just really starting. So you're going through that that process together. Always be dating and realize that because I never fully know my partner, although I try to, I might try to fool myself and say, I know them and life is now boring. That's just something that we do in order to have stability and security. And we trade that for having passion. So if I say my partner is boring and I know exactly what he or she is going to do every day, and there's nothing more to know about them, what I'm actually doing is I'm saying, because I'm afraid of the unknown, I'm afraid of not fully knowing my partner and what he or she might do or who they are, and that security is something I want, I'm going to give up the feeling of excitement that comes from actually realizing I don't fully know them. So we choose safety over passion, but then we complain about the boredom, but we have to recognize the part we play in creating that boredom. The part we play in saying my partner is fully known and is boring rather than recognizing that they are a multifaceted and complicated person who has many sides that we haven't fully seen, and also they're evolving. So even if I felt like I knew them at one point, they're going to change and evolve. So just like I can never fully know myself, I definitely can never fully know someone else. And when I say that to myself, it's in a way of fooling myself to feel better about things. Now another thing in relationships that's important is intimacy. And I talk a lot about intimacy, and we can talk about fears of intimacy. And really, a fear of intimacy is something that we all have to a degree, because intimacy is a little bit risky and scary. So uh, a fear of intimacy is kind of like a fear of, let's say, snakes for almost anyone. I'm not saying a phobia, but most people are not going to love being around a snake that's venomous and, uh, let's say, um, can hurt them. So we're all going to not like them, but some people might have a phobia, very strong fear of snakes. So intimacy is kind of the same thing. We all have some discomfort with it because it takes some risk to be emotionally intimate with someone. That vulnerability, that openness, you're essentially allowing someone to hurt you. The more close and connected you get to someone, the more is at risk. If the relationship ends, if there's infidelity, if your partner, something happens to them, whatever it might be, you're risking more. So it's always going to feel a little bit scary. But again, going back to just having a relationship to begin with, closeness and intimacy is a risk that we hopefully will be willing to take because we feel it's worth it. It's a little bit scary. We're exposing ourselves. There's no guarantee. But that closeness that we feel and the resulting relationship we can create is something that hopefully we'll feel is worth taking that risk. So both partners have to be willing to create that intimacy. You really can go... Uh, only as deep as both of you are willing to go in that ocean of uh, connection and relationship together. If you don't go, uh, if one partner's not willing to go deep, you can't go that deep. You have to be willing to connect at a deeper level. So we have to look at our own uh, availability when it comes to intimacy, our own fears of intimacy and how that might get in the way. Now, sometimes when people hear intimacy, first of all, they often think of physical intimacy, which can be a part of it. But also we think of closeness somehow as this idea of almost like attachment that yes me and my partner were so close because we do everything together every moment every minute and we we're just never apart in any way and even if we're apart we have to constantly text each other till we see each other again and we think this is a testament to how strong our love is but really this is more a type of like symbiotic love a type of i i need you i have to have you around or else i don't survive or i'm afraid to lose you there's an insecurity of a threat of other people or that I'm going to lose you and who you are. And so we think it's actually love that makes us feel so close, but it's actually coming from a fear of loss, a fear of abandonment, and a fear of losing the other person either to someone else or that they'll forget about us. It's not actually true love. To to keep love and intimacy alive, you need closeness, but you also need space. So we can use the analogy of A fire or a flame. And sometimes we hear that about passion. They use that analogy of the flame has gone out or the flame of of love or that fire. And if you want to get a fire going, you definitely need closeness, right? You need the heat to create fire. That has to be there. Or if you're rubbing sticks together or creating some kind of fire, you need some kind of that tension or friction, that heat has to be there. So of course, you have to have the closeness to create the heat to keep the flame alive. But if you're too close, if you smother a fire, it goes out. And so a fire also needs oxygen to stay hot, to feed it, to keep it growing and to stay alive. So to keep the flame alive, you also need space. And as partners, as connected as you are, you also have to be your own selves with your own lives. Um, It could be your own careers. It could be your own social life. And actually, gonna be probably all of those things, but that space still has to be there where you get to still be yourself and also even create that space between you at times to create that heat or to keep that heat alive because it feeds it essentially with that oxygen. So you need that balance. And with a lot of these things, someone listening might think, well what does that mean? How much time? What do we have to do? What does it look like exactly? And I can't tell you exactly what's going to look like because it will look different for each Person and these types of balances of closeness and space—they're um, really not these types of puzzles that we just solve or we just find a solution, you know. So I think we just figure it out. But it's really basically, uh, I think Esther Perel talks about enigmas we basically figure out or we we're balancing throughout the relationship. So you always will be dealing with this. The idea of intimacy is not something that you've solved. It's something that you continually be continually will be working on. And so sometimes you might feel more distant and then you might get closer. Sometimes one of you might feel more distant or disconnected or more unhappy about disconnection than the other one. But you have to continually work together and work on the relationship to keep that going. It isn't something that's just purely solvable and that goes away. And lastly, as much as we like to think about soulmates and this idea that we found someone and they have to be the one... And because of that, that makes our love somehow everlasting and happily ever after is inevitable and all those fairy tale types of things we like to think about. The truth is we do that because we want to take away that anxiety that maybe we're going to lose the person. Maybe this doesn't work out. Maybe it's not right. But really the truth of the matter is the person you've chosen to be with hopefully is a very good partner for you make sense for you. You guys match well. You guys work well in all sorts of ways. But really they're just one of many people that you actually can be with. That's really the truth. And in a way that can even be more romantic that you've chosen this one person to be with. Not that it was created in the stars that the two of you have to be together and you have no choice. It's actually you're choosing to be with each other, not you're forced to be with each other. And because of that, you've chosen that person to be your partner throughout life, to create that journey with together. You've chosen he or she to be your it, to be your partner for the rest of your life. And that's going to be you and him or you and her for the rest of your lives. Not because you have to, not because it was in the stars, but because actually by your own volition, by your own choice, you're choosing that person. And to me, that's actually more romantic than something that's in the stars, that was out of your control, that you, in a way, almost had to do. So to me, that's the truth of it. We choose someone, we get to be with them for the rest of your life, and you get to work together through the ups and downs, the good and the bad, um, you know, through goodness and health and all that stuff that we talk about. That's what you get to share with that person, and you've chosen to take that ride together, that journey together, and to show love to one another the rest of your lives. So to me, that could be beautiful thing so to all the people in relationships happy Valentine's Day to those of you that aren't happy Valentine's Day to you too you can also love yourself and make sure you always love yourself whether you're in a relationship or not and don't think that being in a relationship defines you or makes your life worth living or good or means you're worth something you're worth something whether or not you're in a relationship so make sure you're good to yourself today too and show yourself some self-love all right Thank you to all the callers and listeners, to Raman here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful day.